if land is correct, then we should expect the state to ratchet up their own investments in cyberspace at the digital plane to accumulate kind of digital arms in response to the fact that startups and tech in general has accumulated its own arms against the, the deregulatory forces. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. Okay, so in the text Meltdown, Nick Land says, and I quote, deregulation and the state arms race each other into cyberspace, end quote. Okay, so what did he mean by this? And more importantly, is this correct? Does this accurately describe a real process in history? That's what I'm going to try to answer today. So just real quick, if you're watching on YouTube, go and like this video and subscribe to the channel. I'm going to upload an analysis of every single sentence in this famous text, all right, in coming weeks and months. I'm not sure at what rate I'll be able to complete it, but I'm hereby committing to doing every single sentence. So, all right, to get into this statement or this particular sentence in the text meltdown, there are really two claims here. I think it would be most helpful for us to break them down and go in order. The first claim is that deregulation and the state can be understood as competing in something like an arms race. The second claim is separate. It's, it's that this arms race somehow pushes both parties onto the digital plane. All right, so when Land refers to deregulation, I think he's probably not referring to any particular political lobbies pushing for the deregulation of particular industries. This is sometimes how it's talked about in American politics. People think of Ronald Reagan, let's say, or the deregulation of the airline industries or what have you. I don't think that's the correct way to understand this term in Land's perspective. Land is talking about everyone in any time and place who is generally looking to escape their box, any anything that's looking for greater freedom. Everyone whose interest and intention is to more or less lengthen whatever political or social leash they're on, that's going to be the general camp of deregulation. That, that's what you should have in your mind when you read the word deregulation here. Similarly, I think the state is better understood in its most general sense, which of course includes governments and what most people think of but it also includes all of the individuals and entities who are interested in just generally improving state control over human liberty as a whole. So is it true that deregulation and the state arms race each other? Well, an arms race is not just any type of conflict. It's a fairly specific game theoretical situation. So an arms race takes place when the best strategy for one party is to increase their arms because they know that the other party's best strategy is to increase their arms. So it's, it's a very specific configuration. Both parties in the, in the typical classic game theory situation known as, as the arms race, specifically both parties would prefer that neither party increase their arms. 
the the parties don't want to escalate, but they feel that they have to because of what they know is the rational calculus of the other. All right. So because each party must predict that the other party will increase their arms, each party must increase their own arms, even if it's preferable for them not to. So in short, the arms race phenomenon, and this really comes out of the international relations literature, it's actually an instance of a more, cla a more general class of games known as the prisoner's dilemma. In the game theory literature, you've probably heard of that before, it's quite a well-known meme, if you will. Okay, so the question is, does this map onto history? Well, if you look at the history of political economy, I think that we find actually quite a lot of evidence to justify this characterization that Land is giving here. I, I'll give you just one specific example that I'm somewhat familiar with from my own knowledge, but you can probably think of much more. And actually, you know, if you do think of others, maybe leave a reply in the YouTube video, in the message, in the comments below. Or if you're just listening on the audio podcast, maybe leave a message in the Other Life community. So, all right, here's the story I would tell. Just one example. Before the 1760s, uh, if you go back to Britain, textiles, the textile industry, um, textiles were woven by hand, all right? So by individual weavers working at home. And you might remember this from your high school history class. This was called the quote unquote, putting out system. And interestingly enough, on a yeah, totally unrelated note, young men, uh, back in my day, when I was a kid, used to use that term to describe uh, girls giving sexual favors, okay, putting out, I'm not talking about that kind, all right? Do young guys still even say that? I have, I have no clue. Uh, I don't. Anyway, I'm dating myself. All right, so <laughs> getting back to the main thread here. Starting around the 1760s, that was when the new textile machinery emerged, all right? And this is when new machines uh, allowed individual weavers to weave textiles much more efficiently than they could at home, all right? Working by hand where it was really difficult, really slow, right? And now, at least in theory, the new machines helped weavers weave faster. But in practice, at the beginning, you know, these new machines were barely viable, in fact. And that's because they required a ton of social coordination and kind of background factors to make them profitable. You needed to arrange a bunch of the new machines in a large space, aka factory, and you need and you needed a bunch of docile individuals, really, um, people who were willing to man the machines and abide by the machine's rhythms. But this was a totally new kind of labor. It, it wasn't really, well, it wasn't at all regulated. So entrepreneurs in this context are trying to recruit and train workers to be able to use these new technologies, you know, just using, you know, whatever people they had around them. And, and the result was horrifying to the dominant sense of, of social order because you had people in these factories that were losing fingers and hands all over the place. And, and you know, you had little kids managing these massive machines. The factories, they, they infamously roared with diabolical sounds and, and so on. If you read novels from that period, the authors would often refer to just the absolutely infernal sound, the demonic roaring of these, of these factories. It was just horrifying, grotesque, and it really repulsed people. So, you know, the state leapt into action, unsurprisingly. And again, this is not just the government. We're talking about something more general than the government. It's the larger mass of people who generally want to control whatever they fear or 
feel anxiety about. Public outcry back at that time when, you know, British industrialism was first kicking off, the, the public outcry was in, in a way part of the state regulation process, uh, the state leaping into action to regulate entrepreneurship and the, the mass fear or anxiety or loathing for the novel mechanisms that are coming into society. That's kind of one one type of response. That's that's one structural systemic phenomenon. And, and that's why I started off by saying that when Nick Land talks about the state, you shouldn't think of it just as the government or like the president of a country. You should think of it as a much uh, broader, deeper um, kind of collective social formation of which the state is only one part. Okay, so, you know, public outcry and indignation by state agents, which we call citizens in our colloquial discourse, that's what forced the state to crack down on the entrepreneurs and early British industrialism. Labor laws were introduced to prohibit the worst of the excesses, and of course, trade unions eventually emerged in precisely this context, all right? So unions were easier to organize in the factories, right? Because factories concentrated the workers in one place. Uh, but if you recall, the reason the workers were in one place in the first place is only because to make these machines profitable, you needed that concentration of bodies, you needed that economy of scale. All right, so already we can kind of see how the technology emerges, those trying to escape regulation and take more freedom and profits for themselves, reorganize the social space, reorganize social norms to promote their own interests, to gain profit at the expense of the regulatory state. And then in the same motion or immediately after, the state and its distributed agents known as citizens leap into action to claw back some of the power taken by the deregulating forces, right? And the way the union was only possible due to the presence of a large number of workers in a concentrated space is itself a, a kind of uh, dependence on the entrepreneurs who kind of rallied those bodies into the same place. Already, we're starting to see um, what I think Nick Land had in mind, uh, a kind of escalating um, conflictual scenario where maybe individual parties here involved don't necessarily want to be doing what they're doing, but they kind of need to because of what they know the other party is going to do, all right? So this historical dynamic is generally well known, actually, if, if you are familiar with the literature on early modern capitalism, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever read like um, uh, Polanyi, for instance, this story has is, is been told many, many times, but it is a new twist, I think, to see it as an arms race. And I do think that this is where Nick Land's perspective is non-trivial and it is unique and, and original. The entrepreneurs who built factories beyond what status quo norms and regulations condoned, these entrepreneurs represented the deregulation vector, okay? Building a factory and worker dormitories and doing all of this stuff to train humans to do something extremely weird and new for profit is, it's kind of like building a bunch of missiles and pointing them at the government's doorstep, right? It's kind of daring them and saying, we hold all of the power. We decide what happens in the society, not you. And in fact, we're accumulating resources to project our power even beyond what you can imagine. And the moralistic citizens and, and the government, what we're here calling the state as a larger social formation, in turn started to accumulate their own 
weapons, basically, in the form of things like public protest and legislation and labor laws and eventually unions. At all times, both sides are always looking to increase their power relative to the others because, or to the other party, I should say, because they are rationally required to do so. They're game theoretically required to do so. If they don't, they're just going to get stomped over by the other party and they're going to disappear from existence. So both sides have to constantly push the limits or else they'll just be destroyed. And that is the classic arms race scenario, okay? So I think it does map on pretty well. One can cite many other more recent examples, by the way. You know, like I said, I think you could probably think of your own. Um, this idea is even widely recognized on the mainstream left, I would say, um, as well as, you know, th they just instead they reverse the normative charge, right? They say that in the late 1960s and early 1970s, for instance, we saw a massive stockpiling of, of weapons, quote unquote, by the state from whether you're looking at the civil rights movement to labor law to radical community organizing the forces of the regulatory state surged forward at that time in the 60s and 70s. And then it was really starting in the mid-70s that the forces of deregulation surged in a kind of retaliation. This is a story that leftists love to tell. Uh, this is kind of absolute, like, standard fare in any, you know, contemporary grad school program. Leftists love to talk about, for instance, the 1973 Trilateral Commission as a kind of turning point where capital kind of got together and they said enough is enough with all of this organizing all of this regulatory stuff and then of course the deregulatory the the deregulation wave or the deregulatory wave that came in the 1980s with Reagan is seen as a kind of uh, conflictual r rational response to the efforts of the of the 60s and 70s all right and so this is not even a particularly you know, conservative viewpoint. It's not an anti-left viewpoint. This is, I think, a fairly reasonable mental model for understanding the relationship between deregulation and the state over time. All right. So the most interesting part of this sentence in Meltdown, however, is that second part where Land says that the arms race between deregulation and the state ultimately pushes both parties onto the digital plane. Well, okay. Does history agree? Let's think about this and, and let's analyze it. So again, I think that this idea is well supported. So here's an example that I like to help illustrate this. Think about taxi unions, okay? Think about before Uber, right? Taxis were highly regulated in most big cities. If you tried to launch projects deregulating the taxi systems, you get caught way before you could scale. In fact, you know, that in some places they did try to stop Uber. They did try to sue. Uh, there were parties who did try to catch Uber. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about why they didn't catch them. Let's talk in a pre-digital context, you know, in general for most of history. If you tried to do this, you what would happen? You know, someone would report you and you wouldn't have enough money to, to you know, or power to win that battle in the, in the legal system. But with digital networks and mobile phone commerce and this kind of at scale internet economy that we have, you at that point, it became possible to scale fast enough and accumulate enough economic weaponry that you could actually outgun the regulatory forces. You could speed out so far ahead of the state 
forces that they couldn't even keep up with you really. And that is exactly what happened with Uber. So if you look at that case study, it's really interesting. They basically accumulated so much power, so much money so fast, totally outside of institutional legibility. Like they come from out of nowhere as startups doing this um, work in a, in a legal institutional gray zone that didn't really map on clearly to any of the laws. Like you couldn't, you know, throw them in jail immediately or something like that. And even if it was arguably illegal or unclear, and there were people who brought suits, but they were able to accumulate so much power so fast that at a certain point, Uber basically just replaced the previous tax authorities just by virtue of the money and power that they were able to make so fast. That's how I read that history anyway. And so I think this maps on quite well to what Land is talking about. If Land is correct, then we should expect the state to ratchet up their own investments in in cyberspace at the digital plane to accumulate kind of digital arms in response to the fact that startups and tech in general, you know, the, the, the private sector and technology has accumulated its own arms against the, the deregulatory forces. And I would say that that's exactly what the state is trying to do. That's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, they're doing it mostly by strong arming the big tech companies through laws, right? You could also look at the Snowden leaks, for instance. Those were kind of one of the first major revelations, really, regarding how ambitiously and secretly the, the state had been accumulating digital weaponry of its own on, on the, the plane of cyberspace. All right. And so I think Land's perspective here does give us a view onto some of the conflicts that have been running throughout history between forces of free enterprise and forces of state control. I do think it's, it's helpful to think of it as an arms race that, that sheds light on certain aspects that you wouldn't really think of through a different mental model. And to see how there is a kind of intrinsic gradient where this conflict pushes onto the digital plane naturally, because it is essentially a race for, for speed, a race for leverage. Okay. That is why the forces of regulation and the forces of deregulation are uh, finding themselves enmeshed increasingly on the digital plane or what land calls cyberspace. All right. And so, you know, the government nowadays, of course, requires big tech companies to help them monitor and arrest individuals of interest, right? The, you know, the FBI can hit up Apple computers at any time and ask for access to, you know, various individuals and, and given, you know, be given access to all kinds of data and information about you, right? It's, this happens regularly. And now if land is correct, then this idea of an arms race onto cyberspace, it should really give us some kind of predictive leverage, right? Any any truly meaningful idea or hypothesis in a social scientific register really is not that useful or important unless it can help us anticipate something that no other perspective can. And so I think what Land would say is that we should expect both sides to increasingly escalate over time. That's one prediction, right, or implication of the idea that it's an arms race. If there's not a kind of increasing escalation over time, then it, then it doesn't really uh, map as nicely as we might expect onto this arms race model. So 
I'm not sure many people think like this. I do think that this is a fairly unique idea. I'm not sure that this would be obvious to many people at all. And even if you explained it to them, I'm not sure many people would necessarily agree. But from where I'm sitting, you know, I think a near future um, that conforms to Land's mental model here is is quite plausible. Look, for instance, at the emergence of something like zero-proof technology. Look at Urbit on the one hand. Cyberspace technologies that provide free spirits ever-increasing degrees of digital autonomy. There's more and more stuff like this, right? Uh, but on the other hand, look at the introduction of central bank digital currencies, or what are, I think they're, they're often called like CBDCs uh, for short. These are basically state-sponsored surveillance blockchains, more or less, okay? Deregulation and the state really are arms racing each other into cyberspace. I think that's exactly what we're seeing today. So thank you so much for listening. That's the end of this particular analysis. If you enjoyed that, please make sure you go and like the video and, and subscribe to the channel on YouTube. If you're just listening on the audio feed on the podcast, maybe you could go leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear if you're enjoying this. So yeah, I'm going to unpack every single sentence in Nick Land's famous text, Meltdown. This is just another one we did today. All right, over and out. Thanks for listening.